One of the problems you and I face in business is how to overcome the massive obstacles that plague our daily work. There's no perfect recipes. There's no neatly designed steps I wish there were to pull out of some kind of a master guide, master manual to be courageous in this situation or to go all in in this situation. Leadership doesn't have easy answers. So what do we do? Just throw our hands up, give up? No, we fight for what we believe to be purposeful, meaningful, thoughtful. And that's why I've invited my dear friend and mentee PJ Ashituro back on the show to help me unpack a journey that is sure to inspire, to motivate, to galvanize you when you are against the wall. The story of a company that almost never got airborne, the story of Pixar. Let's join the conversation in this two-part back-to-back series. I can't wait for you to join us. I'm Dr. Nate Sala, and this is A Call to Leadership. PJ. We're back. (laughs) Great to have you back, man. And I'm so thrilled to work through this series with you on what I would classify as one of the greatest business success stories in modern history, the story of Pixar. And the story of Pixar, many people know of Pixar. They know of the movies and they've seen Monsters, Inc. or Toy Story. And of course, all down the line, many, many Pixar movies, huge success. And they've seen this Pixar slash Disney on a lot of the media. And now it's Disney owns Pixar. And there's a lot of ambiguity in how this happened and why it's so important and why it's so relevant for how magic can happen. But it's not really magic at all. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of great leadership. And I think it's going to be really exciting to unpack it with you. Yeah, I'm so excited too, because I think it's one thing to study companies. I keep throwing Amazon under the bus, but like Amazon who just have like kind of brick and mortar, like, oh man, it's nuts and bolts. That was a really wise or sound approach. But I think the beauty of Pixar, aside from the crazy sort of Hollywood like journey, ironically, they had into Hollywood is that it's a marriage of sort of artistry and entrepreneurship. And I think that is what I feel like if you're a listener and you're really trying to get some good takeaways. I mean, truly, even if you're not sort of in the artistic space like I am, there's so many great takeaways just for management and like and fostering creativity and innovation. And I think every business can benefit from learning how to foster an environment in which creatives can thrive. Yes. And I would add that every business will die if it does not foster creativity and innovation. And innovation need not be a bad word in terms of it's so incredibly high of a mountain to climb. It's just ideas. Because one of the essential factors of leadership is new frontiers. And also, our customer doesn't want to invent our behalf. They want us to invent on their behalf. And contexts are constantly changing. And if you don't invent, if you don't innovate, someone else will. Blockbuster. Huge, huge disruptors in the industry back in the 80s, 90s, but they did not innovate. And so I think if we're not hungry, it will be the death of us. You know, if we're comfortable 
Comfort is the enemy of progress. Yeah, someone told me I've once. heard that <laughs> <laughs> daily from Nate. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's imperative to any entrepreneur and to learn, you know, sort of fostering and really an environment at which not just your creativity can thrive, but your team's creativity yes. is valued and fostered, and then obviously they're able to execute, and you can do so much more than you ever thought you could just on your own ideas and creating that as an environment. Agreed. Yeah. And that's, I think, what's an area that I think we'll revisit again and again through our conversation is the value of the team and having the vision, the tenacity, the forethought, and the communication of giving permission to invent in an organization and watch the beautiful ideas begin to emerge. In fact, I believe that every member of the organization from the front line all the way up, is responsible for progress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ultimately what our goal is in an organization, to continue to progress. Because as soon as we stop progressing, we burn out. Right. And then actually we lose our sense of purpose. Yeah. So it's cool to be here with you today because I think you represent historically more of the entrepreneurial perspective, given your background, your businesses, and I'm more on the artistic side, you know, being a filmmaker in the past and sort of now more managing a TV show, you know, as a creator. So let's just dive right in. I think it'd be good to help our audience to understand some of the foundations Mm -hmm. of where Pixar was in the early days, how it even, you know, some of the key players and then kind of the transition because a lot of people don't know this, but Pixar was not an animation company. It didn't make movies when it first started. And I think what's crazy is people don't realize that George Lucas was a key contributor to Pixar and then Steve Jobs was. So I can't wait to right. Yeah, we're going to drop some bombs on our folks about how Steve Jobs, what his contribution was, because we largely associate Jobs with Apple, but Pixar was really the business that put him back on the map. Right after about close to at least a ten-year lull. Yeah, nobody remembers next computers. Right, but that was the next iteration after he got demoted from Apple. So George Lucas. Okay, who is George Lucas? Yeah, I mean, George Lucas is Star Wars, right? right? But before then, I mean, Ed Catmull was born in 1945. Yeah. And who's Ed Catmull? What's his role? Thank you. So Ed Catmull is the author of Creativity, and he is sort of the CEO slash founding member, essentially, of Pixar. But Pixar started for him, it started as a dream, you know, when he was a kid growing up watching Disney animation back in, you know, the 50s, essentially, right? And I think he was always really fascinated by not just the emotions the shows made him feel, but the how. Because it was magic back then. It really was. There weren't a lot of things like Disney. And basically, as he got older and started to study in school, he became fascinated by the development of computers. And he thought one day, you know, what if we could do more than just hand-drawn artistry? What if it could be more efficient if computers were a central part of the animation process? Which is important that he was influenced in the 50s by Disney because what was happening in the 50s when he was a kid is the formation of the park, which was Magic Kingdom. Now, what was important about that was Walt had a good 20 plus years of animated 
stories that he was then taking to a new medium where he was going to create a three-dimensional experience of those stories in the park. See, this is what had never been done. So this is really critical because when we fast forward to later with what was happening with Pixar, think about the 2D animation, right? It almost looks in three dimensions when it's now in the computer animation, right? Right. So this would have been really important for Ed because this was an experience that led him to see how we can actually create a greater dimensionality out of story through what Walt Disney was doing with the park and what would later happen with him at the helm at Pixar. Yeah. And so I think for Ed, he was always about being on the edge between technology and artistry. A lot of times we don't always think about great artists as also sort of great inventors, great engineers, and not even that necessarily Ed was the one who was programming all of the facets, though he did do a lot of programming in his time. It was more about him having the vision to help creatives and engineers sort of create these new things. I mean, I'm trying to think of seminal films back in the 80s. More the 80s is where computer animation started to really take mainstream, like Terminator. Those effects were really legendary. Obviously, Jurassic Park oh, yeah. was the first major film to feature sort of big, quote unquote, as we know it today, computer animation which was absolute breakthrough. But what people don't know is that sort of science fiction realm, we've seen a lot of computer generation. There was 2001 Space Odyssey, and then there was Star Wars. And, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey was a Stanley Kubrick kind of cult classic film, but it didn't have a really big market. But then started Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic as a special effects division and 2001 Space Odyssey's team. And then that's how he created Star Wars. And so that really began, I think, the science fiction revolution and sort of the need. And Catmull would have been very influenced by all of this. Probably around this time is back in, you know, the kind of the late 70s, early 80s. And this is when Ed was probably just finishing college. He had had a degree, I think, actually initially in engineering. And then he got an opportunity to have an internship at this sort of New York Institute of Technology and work for this guy named Alex Schur. And Alex Schur was like a multimillionaire and he wanted to do experimental technology sort of with like creating computer generated films, which had not been done at that point. Again, like there's elements of computer generation in the industry, but no one had ever done an entire film before. Like when you saw like Roger Rabbit or different aspects of where the computer-generated element was in the movie, but not entirely. Yeah, but I even think with Roger Rabbit, it was animation over top right. traditional things. Right. So it wasn't even... CGI. Yeah, CGI. Like, really, I think, actually, Ed was one of the first pioneers, probably even back in the 70s or whenever he was started. Anyway, it's fascinating to see sort of his relentless pursuit of that and how that sort of... The different turns he had to have over the years to end up at Toy Story, you know? And that's kind of where we're headed hopefully with this episode, is sort of how he started. And really, I think so many of the takeaways I was learning is that we can have these broad visions for what we want in our future, but the road it takes to get there is anything but clear. Right. And we'll see Ed ping pong ball back and forth between companies, various visions, for even companies he runs, which aren't his eventual vision. He's just kind of pivoting opportunities that are around him. Right. Yeah, and at the same time in the mid-70s, Steve Jobs is on his side of the equation is beginning to venture in the tech world himself in a greater context with the Apple 
I guess, give us yeah. a parallel background with Steve Jobs and Apple at this time. You bet. Yeah. So him and his partner, the other Steve, Steve Wozniak, mm-hmm. create this Apple One. And it's a revolution, if you will, in personal commuting. Really, there was no such thing as personal computing as far mm-hmm. as we know it today. Right. It was just hobbyists and builders. And he wanted to take the personal computer and fill homes with it all across the globe. And what he wanted, though, what was really special was the user experience was to be exquisite. And he was an artist himself. He took calligraphy classes and he wanted beautiful fonts in the computer. He wanted the aesthetics to be pleasing. He wanted the user to be drawn in irresistibly. Mm. And this philosophy of business would be something that would carry through to his involvement at Pixar later, which would have been about a decade later when he did, in fact, get involved with Pixar. So this is 1976, Apple launches, 77, 78, the Apple II, and of course the Apple III and so on. And through the late 70s to the early 80s, there's a couple other, there's the Mac and the Lisa that are in production And by end of 84, early 85, Jobs is having a lot of trouble at this point with Apple and the board and very maverick approach still. And they were becoming a big boy company. You know, they were growing up and Jobs was seen as a possible liability for that. Right. Because I think he had yet to learn empathy and he'd yet to sort of have more of a rounded perspective that he came to find later. Indeed, yeah, and even through Pixar. So believe it or not, he wanted Apple to buy Pixar while he was still at Apple in the mid-'80s. And it's a little-known fact that it was rejected. Apple was not interested in buying Pixar. And as soon as he got demoted in the mid-'80s, 85, he quit, essentially. He kept one share of stock because he sold all the stock except for one share so he could sit in on the shareholder <laughs> meeting still. <laughs> And promptly went to Lucas. Right, right. Okay, so let's... To purchase Walk, walk back to Ed Catmull meeting Lucas. So mm-hmm. around this time, I believe this is you know, sort of early 80s. So Lucas had been on the heels of Star Wars. He had been really trying to develop a lot of proprietary technology for Star Wars and creating industrial light magic. But I believe actually at this point, he had uh, was going through his divorce with his first wife, Martha, and... That divorce was so costly that he had to start to sell off a lot of assets. And so Pixar was sort of his sort of dream to have create computer animation equipment that can create for his brand. So it was a hardware company. It was a hardware company. There was some software. It was primarily hardware. Because they really didn't have computer animation sort of focused hardware back then, you know, in the 80s and mid 80s. And so these computers were expensive. They were $100,000 plus a pop, as we'll learn in a minute when Steve Jobs comes in. But anyway, it was just kind of bleeding capital, I think, for Lucas in him sort of buckling down with Lucasfilm. That's when sort of he met Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. From there. So just as you said, yeah, it's just like, what can I liquidate? So Steve Jobs comes along and said, well, since Apple wasn't going to buy Pixar, I want to buy it. And he took $5 million bucks, gave it to Lucas to buy Apple, $5 million to capitalize, so a $10 million investment. And he was the new chief of Pixar. Now, at the time, of course, he got introduced to the leadership staff, which was Catmull and John Lasseter, who we'll learn more about, who's 
one of the visionary minds behind many of the stories that are attributed to Pixar success. Mm-hmm. He wasn't as prominent in those days. He was certainly an important piece. Because he was at Walt Disney Animation. And he was responsible for a lot of some of their hits. And I think that's Jobs and Ed Catmull were able to kind of lure him away. You know, it's like you have more control, more autonomy, less, you know, hierarchy. I actually thought he might have been terminated from Disney. And so I think that's an important piece, too, because they try to get him back later. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about Michael Eisner, too, because that'll be an important piece. So what Jobs comes in. And what's brilliant about Catmull is he is able to understand Jobs' nuances of leadership, right? (laughs) Which was a little uh, acerbic at at times back then. (laughs) Yeah, at the time, he had some challenges with communication and how he communicated his values. There was a lot of friction even within Pixar with certain members of the Pixar team. But he did give creative control, Mm -hmm. allowed creative control to Catmull and Lassiter and the team as even they began to embark on this journey of, you know, how are we going to make Pixar profitable? Right. But he was actually trying to sell Pixar most of the journey through there uh, because he was losing money. There was not a year where Pixar was profitable under jobs until they went public. Yeah. And so I think for Steve Jobs, you know, he's sort of what he probably sell his Apple shares at like 100 plus million Mm -hmm. between 100 and 150 Mm -hmm. maybe or something like that. So he's looking, of course, to kind of make his brand with Next Computers. I think Pixar was a bit of a plan B to some degree because Next Computers probably was more of the personal computer kind of competition to Apple. But this is more of his hope for a higher end computer that's like a business use. Well, yeah, I mean, in some ways. So what he wanted to do was hit the education market with Next. And so he had a hardware division, a software division, and he had these machines. I think they were like $15,000. And of course, at that time, so cost prohibitive. They did phenomenal things. Yeah. Uh, as far as the word processing and different aspects of it, just amazing. But it was not profitable at all. He ended up closing the hardware division. So he's hemorrhaging cash yep. through Next. He's hemorrhaging cash through, through Pixar. And part of that was because it was just cost of production back then. Like their computers, they thought, well, let's price them high because they're one of a kind. So they priced the Pixar computer at $100,000. And then they immediately got a branding of, Oh, those guys are like too expensive. So he couldn't bring down the price later like they were already known. And they really just couldn't get much sales off the ground for the Pixar uh, Mm -hmm. computers. And I think Jobs to an extent as well. And of course, John all understood that it was always about making a movie. Yeah. And I think they just tried to have a split focus because they were still developing the technology over the course of the 80s and really into the early 90s to make a movie like if you gave sort of ed and john back in 86 you know pixar was acquired by steve jobs they didn't have the technique for hair they didn't have the technique for some of the faces i think that's what a part of the company was doing was creating the more of the software components to be able to program what they wanted to do and how they were getting their reps in was john laster was making these short films so that first they made the larry the lamp which we all know is the intro sequence in any Pixar film with the lamp, but that actually got nominated for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. And then he moved on to, I think like a tin cup man or something like that, which won an Oscar as a short. Yep. So I think initially trade show awards were the first sort of small victory. And I think that's important even like to sort of do a side note is that these small victories are a way to build courage. 
And so that's important for our listener who is considering, okay, well, I've got this grand idea, but maybe the tech, the world, the market, the context isn't ready. So you've got to continue to do what you can in other areas as the context becomes ripe. In other words, until it's ready to converge. And I think that's in a sense why sort of diversification at your company is important. In a sense, like if they went all in too early on computers and multimedia, like trying to make a film, they would have crashed because they didn't have the ability to do it yet. And then eventually later, if they went all in on just hardware, they would have crashed because, you know, the world couldn't afford it. They didn't want it. So that's the discovery phase, right? Mm -hmm. Of any sort of visionary process. Absolutely. Yeah. And so as far as, you know, this relationship between Catmull and Jobs and of course, John Lasseter to an extent as Mm -hmm. well, there's a symbiosis between the three of them. And where I think that's important to kind of talk through like this journey from 86 to 95, you know, this 10 year march, if you will, I mean, a lot of stress too. By the time across that time span, Jobs had, I think, lost about $70 million yes. of his own money. Yeah. Again, I think it's, he's around the $100 million yeah. mark of net worth. So yeah, like 30 million left. Now, granted, for most of us, right. $30 million is a lot of money. But this is money down the drain. It's not like investments or something that it's very risky. So if your actual valuation of the company was $5 million and you've invested 70 million, you know, if I was Steve Jobs, I'd be thinking, well, crap, I can only get $5 million for this company as it stands right now. And I'm already out another 65, right? Plus my other five that I invested, whatever. Yeah. Right. So, right. Cause what if it is, even if you could get 20 or 30, what if it's a dead horse, you know, later? Mm-hmm. So he was courting throughout the whole time. He was courting other companies like Microsoft yeah. who were all offering him, you know, at one point they did offer him $90 million and he refused it. And he thought it was so insulting, (laughs) so insulting of an offer that he closed discussions with them. And Ed was reflecting. He said, like, part of that process was sort of Steve just waffling of like his heart, I think, telling him he knows the worth of a company like this, but also just trying to be responsible steward of his dwindling fortune, right? Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that resonated with Jobs is he realized that he even said that Pixar was really at his heart. I mean, in terms of business, certainly Apple was his foundation, his baby. But what he said was that these cell phones that we create and all of this tech devices, they end up in a trash heap eventually. These stories will remain with families and individuals forever and that's so true i mean i cry like a baby when i watch moana and i'm sure anyone who has kids you know their kids have seen moana and they've seen moana 90 plus times i think honestly like does more for those kids than having this tablet over that tablet now i love apple products but truly like pixar films are a sort of our modern cultural mythos in which we have value formation as kids yeah so let's talk about what's happening at disney while Pixar is beginning to get some notoriety. Yeah, so they're getting notoriety in the Oscars. So my guess is at this point, kind of in our journey, we're in the early 90s, probably like 92. Mm -hmm. Actually, they worked on Toy Story for five years, and they've released it in, I think, 95. So this would be like 1990. That's kind of where we are. Yeah, about 1990. And Disney animation is fizzling. Nothing new under the sun, no real innovation, and they're struggling animators are being fired 
it's an ugly scene. And part of that is they did obviously have a bunch of hits like The Lion King, like Aladdin and some of the others. But the problem is after those sort of big hits they had, they essentially had such bloated budgets that they sort of had to continue feeding the beast. And so they realized that the most successful sort of financial model was to do direct-to-DVD sequels. So all of us have seen Aladdin, but very few of us have seen Aladdin 2, or I think there's a lot of three. There's a bunch of weird sequels to these classics because, again, from Disney's sort of franchise mentality, it was a profitable business model. But Pixar sort of was founded in the antithesis of that. Ed Catmull later says, quality is our business plan. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. Yeah. 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 And that quality fed these relationships. Of course, we have to bring John Lasseter into the conversation because he's been called the second Walt Disney in terms of his genius and story. Right. And of course, Disney, I'm sure, lamented for years on that exodus, but they ended up getting him back later. We'll talk more about that. But the heart of his story was so compelling and his ability to personify whatever the movie was, whether it's toys or a lamp or anything else. Um, The anthropomorphizing, human characteristics in non-human things, Uh essentially. And Steve Jobs picked up on that. He picked up on that ability. And I think that's important to recognize is when you have exceptional talent right and that transition because they were doing hardware and they were selling their software but to transition from okay this is our one business vertical Mm -hmm. and we're going to move into a entirely different vertical that none of us have the long-range exposure or experience in right running right daunting yeah so at this stage steve jobs in his true form starts thinking, who else can I bring into this equation? Well, he brings in Lawrence Levy. I don't recall the year exactly, but in the 90s, early 90s, maybe the mid, to start talking about how we're going to transition Pixar when something big happens, because now they're in negotiation with Disney. Right. So, yeah, I mean, as memory serves, Disney is looking for a way to break their dry spell. They're looking for a way to innovate. Michael Eisner, right? Mm -hmm is in command of Disney. And I think they see Pixar is not a threat, but a new opportunity to innovate, right? You know, they're small, they haven't made any films. And yet they're creating a lot of buzz. So actually Pixar was doing some advertising. They did a bunch of animated commercials. Mm -hmm. So they proved their chops that there's demand and there's innovation. And so they did a partnership deal where they said, let's create a three picture deal. We'll distribute the films, you create the films and we'll fund it. And so initially they wanted to essentially kind of acquire them without acquiring them. And so they, in the terms, it was like, okay, we want the rights to kind of own your computers and own the software in the process. But Steve pushed back on that really hard. He said, you're just paying us to bake the cake. You're not paying us to show you how the cake's baked. Mm-hmm. It's important because, well, there's a great deal of not only bravado when you approach that with Disney. Now, keep this in mind. You're 70 plus million dollars in debt. Your other company, Next Computer, is not doing so hot, right? right? It's pretty easy to capitulate. Yeah. Especially because Eisner is Michael Eisner. I mean, one, he was a hard-hitting businessman, very savvy, extremely crafty. And he's the CEO of Disney. Like, I'm sure we like to think of Steve Jobs as if 
We think of him now, but really he's sort of origin tale. He This is his post fall from grace, so he doesn't have as much sort of social clout as we attribute him to him now. Right. Yeah, he was on the verge of being a one-hit wonder. Well, my friend, how about that for a cliffhanger? Almost a one-hit wonder indeed. But that's not how the story ends. In fact, so many amazing things happen when we've got to take the time to listen in The good news is you don't have to wait a whole week. I've reformatted the show, and now this is going to be back-to-back with our multi-part series. As you asked, you got. So just in two more days, you're going to get to hear the second part of this amazing story with my friend PJ. Can't wait for you to listen in. Have a wonderful rest of your day.